It's a long way to Lubbock from Glasgow, Kentucky. I can tell you that. Several hours, but we came down on Monday and stopped off in Amarillo for a couple of days. And people ask, why would you do that, right? <clears throat> there are some beautiful sights to see up there. If you haven't seen the Palo Duro Canyon, I would highly uh, recommend that you go see that sometime so that you can be wowed by yet another of God's creation. It's so good for us to be here. Uh, Stephanie and I have been anticipating this for several years now. I'm not even sure how long this meeting has been scheduled. I know it was I know it was before 2020, so I don't know if it was 2019, 2018, whenever it was. But we've been looking forward to it for several reasons. One, because we just love to uh, be in the company of God's people and having the opportunity to meet new people. We like to do that. Another reason that we were looking forward to coming here uh, I'm here because of Stan Lewis's recommendation, and Stan let me know about, I think it was about two months ago, he said, oh, by the way, we're not going to be there when you're there. I'm like, oh, great. So we were looking forward to spending time with Stan and Joanna and the boys, uh, but in the absence of that, I get to spend time with you all. Uh, it's very good for us to be here. Uh, Stan and I are longtime friends, uh, friend of years, friend of tears, as they say. We've known each other for, for several years and have done a lot together. Appreciate Stan very much. It's good to see Chuck wherever, there he is back there, good to see Chuck again, uh, be able to rekindle our relationship with him. The uh, theme of this weekend's series of lessons is going to be along the lines of your, uh, your key word for this year. And it's going to be some things that will tie into being transformed. We're going to be talking about some, uh, some subject matter that has to do with, with transformation. And so hopefully all of the lessons will be beneficial uh, as we open God's Word and, and study God's Word together. Um, like George, you all probably know very little about me, and you're probably better for that. Um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a bio, I don't know, is it, is it on the website now? There's a bio that I sent to Stan quite a while ago, and I think George got hold of it yesterday or day before and, and probably posted it, so uh, maybe you have read that. Uh, you will find out very quickly that I am just a country bumpkin uh, from West Virginia. Please don't hold that against me. It is almost heaven, you know. Um, people would say, you're just a redneck or a hillbilly. Yes, that is absolutely true. Again, you're going to find that out very soon. Um, you're going to find out that I'm not a polished speaker. And, well, you know, you, you get what you get. Uh, but again, hopefully our time that we spend together this weekend will be beneficial to you. It already has been beneficial to me, and I look forward to continuing our relationship together through the course of our studies this week. I hope to encourage you from God's Word and not to discourage you. 
another thing that I want to do is I, I hope to get myself out of the way. This is not about me. And as much as I like you already, it's not about you either. What this is about, this is about God. This is about giving glory to Him, learning more about Him and, and His Word. And how that God draws us closer to Himself. So George mentioned that we're going to begin over in Jeremiah chapter 8. As you are turning over to that passage, uh, just to kind of set up what we're uh, going to be looking at here in Jeremiah chapter 8. Before the Babylonians swept in and took over the southern kingdom of Judah, God sent yet another prophet to God's chosen people in the southern kingdom of Judah, and that prophet was Jeremiah. And when Jeremiah came onto the scene, God had a responsibility to, for Jeremiah that he was supposed to tell them his word, tell them God's word. And God's word through the prophet Jeremiah is really not a very uplifting message at all. In fact, Jeremiah's prophecy, I believe it's 52 chapters as, as we have it, Jeremiah's message from God is filled with sadness. God sent Jeremiah onto the scene to tell, quote, the people of God that they were guilty of sin. And they were guilty of so many different sins. If we read through Jeremiah, you know, you'll, you'll see several individual sins of those people being itemized. Among those sins, one of the things that the people in the southern kingdom of Judah were guilty of, they were guilty of depending on other nations. You know, God told his people, depend on me. Put your trust in me. I will see you through. But the circumstance for the southern kingdom of Judah at the time that Jeremiah was a prophet was that the impending disaster of the Babylonians was upon them. And so rather than put their trust and their faith in God to deliver them, to see them through their enemies... They put their trust in some other nations, like the Egyptians, for example. And so God sent Jeremiah onto the scene to tell the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, look, you should have put, you should have put your trust in me. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in other countries, other nations. Another one of the individual sins that the people were guilty of in the southern kingdom of Judah is they were guilty of idolatry. And you know from your study of the Bible, that's not a new thing for the, quote, people of God, right? We call them God's chosen people. But honestly, in the history of the people of Israel, did they act like God's chosen people? They really didn't, did they? They failed to give honor and glory to God. They bowed down to false gods and goddesses left and right, any number of them. God said, no other God but me, just me. In fact, their level of sin in idolatry got so low that many of those people even offered their own children as burnt sacrifices to false gods and false goddesses. Can you even begin to imagine, those of you who are parents... Those of you who are grandparents, can you even begin to imagine 
the thinking process that would lead people to sacrifice their own children on an altar of idolatry. And yet, the quote, people of God did that very thing. And they did it over and over again. And so again, there are so many sins that these people were guilty of. Jeremiah was sent by God to warn them and to tell them, hey, because you have turned your back on God, because you have stopped trusting Him, God is going to punish you. And the way that God was going to punish them specifically, He was bringing the Babylonians in to conquer them. And Jeremiah tells the people that they're going to serve in captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 8, so that's the, that's the general background of the whole book of Jeremiah. Doesn't sound very uplifting, does it? It wasn't very uplifting, I promise you. And in Jeremiah chapter 8, notice in verse 20, the verse says, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. In this particular section of, of Jeremiah's prophecy, the prophet Jeremiah was mourning the situation there in Judah. Again, the whole book of Jeremiah is a book of sadness. What do we call, what do we call Jeremiah? We have a nickname for him, right? The weeping, the weeping prophet, yes. Because of the sadness of the message that God called Jeremiah to deliver. So, the people of Judah, they knew, they understood that, that the Babylonians were at hand. They knew they were facing that serious threat. But those people of God, quote, end quote, they were expecting somebody to swoop in and to deliver them from the Babylonians. Hey, maybe it'll be the Egyptians. But it wasn't the Egyptians. You know, maybe, maybe God will swoop in at the last minute and maybe God will deliver the people in the southern kingdom of Judah from the Babylonians. But guess what? He didn't. God did not deliver them. So again, chapter 8 and verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. As George pointed out a little while ago, I mean, that, that's the first part of this, our situation as well, right? The summer has ended. Now, some of us are glad about that. Some of us may not be so glad about that. I love the fall. That's my favorite time of the year. But Jeremiah says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. So, thinking about that particular verse led me to consider some other thoughts from God's Word. And something that I would like for, for us to consider tonight, I, I'm going to, uh, just for a few minutes, I, I'm, I'm going to lay out for you some of my findings, and I'm going to encourage you to study this particular subject on your own. Um, the word salvation appears in the Bible 164 times. The word saved appears in the Bible 104 times. The word save appears in the Bible 233 times. And there are other 
very closely related terms that tie in with, with those three words. Okay. Anytime you, you read something in the Bible, if the Bible mentions it one time, is it important? Absolutely. But when we see something that is mentioned repeatedly, that's mentioned over and over and over again, we should immediately get a sense of, hey, God is trying to dial us in. God wants us to see something. God wants us to understand something important here. So the subject of salvation is discussed literally hundreds of times in the pages of God's Word. Okay, salvation in the Old Testament. I, I will admit to you, I've, I've, been, I've been studying the Bible for years and years. I've been preaching God's Word for years and years. I will admit to you that I don't remember ever having an in-depth study of the term salvation all the way through the Bible. And so I was a little bit surprised to see the pattern in the Old Testament was that the primary usage of salvation, the, the primary discussion relating to salvation in the Old Testament really was more of a physical deliverance. It had to do with being saved from your enemies or you know, being saved from challenges, being saved from, from problems, from, from situations that were, that were troubling. Kind of a physical deliverance. Kind of like our passage there in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 20. If, 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 if the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, if they thought, hey, we need to be saved, what were they thinking? They were thinking, we need to be saved from the Babylonians, right? And so again, that, that's primarily the way that the term is used back in the Old Testament. And I've got a long list of, of, of passages. You can look these up too. Uh, if you have a concordance or you can look them up online you can look these up, many, many passages, just a couple to consider as examples. In Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13. You remember God sent Moses to go down to Egypt and to lead the Israelites out of the Egyptian captivity. And so after the plagues, Pharaoh is finally convinced to let the Israelites go and they leave and, and you know the Egyptians loaded them down with all kinds of treasures, all kinds of stuff. They left Egypt. Well, they weren't gone very long before Pharaoh changed his mind, hardened his heart yet once again, and sends his army in hot pursuit. So we get over to Exodus chapter 14 and the situation is the Israelites come up to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is hot on their tail. And it's like, oh no, what are we going to do? There's nowhere we can go. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Okay, so we know the end of the story. We know how God saved those people, right? God says to Moses, 
Why are you praying to me? Stretch your rod out. And he stretched the rod out and the water was parted. God parted the waters. And the Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry land. And they get over to the other side and stretches the rod over the water again. And what happened? After the, you know, the Egyptian army gets down in the, on the dry land. But it wasn't dry very long, right? Because now the water comes back and Egyptian army is gone. And so then in Exodus chapter 15, we've got the song of Moses. The song of deliverance. God saved his people. Okay, again, that's primarily the way that the word salvation is described in the Old Testament. It has to do with, with being delivered from your enemies. Being saved from circumstances and situations. Here's another good one. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 4. 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 4. This is one of those verses that's recorded also over in one of the Psalms. But this is one of those verses that it's very hard to read the Bible verse without singing it. I'm not going to sing it to you because you don't want to hear that. But 2 Samuel 22 and verse 4. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Okay. So, again, you can do the due diligence on your own. You can dig in and, and study the concept of salvation in the Old Testament. But primarily, salvation was focused on physical deliverance in the Old Testament. However, there are a few passages that at least have a little bit of a hint towards something more. Like this one, for example, Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 17. God said through the prophet Isaiah, But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Hey, that sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? Than the other passage, you know, like about being saved from the Egyptian army or being saved from the Babylonians. Okay, salvation. You'll be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Or like this passage over in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 5. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. And there's another one on our example list. Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. In this chapter, Jeremiah is talking about the one that would come in the future who was called the branch. That makes an interesting study. Just a you know, little side note there. If you haven't studied the branch. Dig into that. It will, it will fill you up. It's great. But Jeremiah talks about the, the branch here. And it says in verse, 20, verse 6 of chapter 23, in his days, that is in the days of the branch, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Talking about the Messiah. Talking about the Christ. So even though the primary usage of the terms related to salvation in the Old Testament have to do with physical deliverance, there are a few passages that, that hit at something more than that. So that's the Old Testament. 
I'd like for you to consider just for a moment then, what about the New Testament? Is it the same in the New Testament? Well, I'll tell you real quickly, there are some references in the New Testament that are very similar to a lot of those that you know, we're talking about a little while ago in the Old Testament that have a lot to do with physical deliverance. For example, just a couple of them. Acts chapter 27 and verse 31. Acts 27 and verse 31. The Apostle Paul, in this context, was on a boat. He was on a ship as a prisoner, and he was on his way to Rome. You know, he had appealed to Caesar. And so, uh, centurion and some soldiers are, are, are taking Paul to Rome. He is a prisoner. And in Acts chapter, whoop, I clicked and I wasn't supposed to. Acts chapter 27 and verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So you remember in the context what was taking place? They're sailing along and there's this huge storm. And it's beating against the ship, and hey, they're going to be shipwrecked. And so Paul makes this statement, unless these men stay in the... See, they they were so scared at the storm, people were about to bail out. Paul says, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. Well, what was he talking about? What kind of salvation is he talking about there? He's talking about being saved from the storm, right? Again, a a physical concept of being delivered. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19. Again, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote this letter, was in prison. And it says in Philippians 1 verse 19, For I know that this shall turn out to my salvation through your supplication and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Christians in the city of Philippi that he knew that God was going to save him through their prayers. Well, what kind of salvation was Paul talking about? Again, Paul was a prisoner, and so Paul's talking about being saved from prison. So yes, the New Testament does use terms having to do with salvation in a physical sense. However... The vast majority, the focal point of salvation in the New Testament is a very different direction from the primary focus of salvation in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And she will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus. one One of the great studies in the Bible is studying the names of people. Because names meant something. It wasn't just, you know, formal names, you know, like my name is Doug. Well, what does that mean? It means dweller by the dark water. I don't... <laughs> I don't that's what it means, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know really. So, names meant something. You will call his name Jesus. Why? It says, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was a descriptive term, not just a formal name, it was a descriptive term, and it meant Jehovah saves. And so Jesus would save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 18 
and verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So just three very quick examples there. Jesus will save people from their sins. Jesus came to save the lost. Jesus came to save sinners. And there are many other passages like this in the New Testament that refer to salvation. And the salvation primarily that's described in the New Testament is not a physical deliverance. But it is a spiritual deliverance. It is spiritual. Consider with me for a moment. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. There are so many things that we could talk about from this passage, but the main point I want us to draw from this passage is that salvation is God's work. Salvation is God's doing. God is the originator of the spiritual salvation. He is the one who is behind it. Anyone who ever has been spiritually in a saved condition has been in that condition because it was the work of God. John chapter 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave. Wait a minute, I, I, thought, I thought man was the originator of salvation. No, man is the one who messed things up, right? Through sin. And so if there's going to be any resolution to the problem of sin, that resolution is going to have to come from God. God is going to have to take the initiative. God is going to have to step in and do something. Salvation is the work of God. We need to understand that it is God's work to save. Paul said it this way. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, there's a lot of verses there, but just focus on, on two verses here. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. Paul said, even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Down in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You know what Paul is saying here is very similar to what we read back in John chapter 3 and verse 16. In this context specifically, Paul is talking about God doing God's work. All of Ephesians chapter 1 Paul is singing the praises of God for all the wonderful works that God had accomplished. We get over to chapter 2. Paul does not shift gears and start talking about a different subject. He continues talking about the same subject. He's praising the work that God has done. 
Salvation is God's work. Paul said, we are saved by grace. But he says, yeah, but we got to have faith. Well, I agree. But do you understand that even the opportunity for you to have faith, even the very opportunity for you to have faith is because of God? How, how can you believe God if you don't consider the evidence that God has given? Well, you can't believe God if you don't consider the evidence. Again, where did that evidence come from? Well, it came from God. And so Paul says again here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, but that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is God's work. For you or I to be spiritually saved, it is because of God. And if God does not do His work, nobody can be saved. Salvation is of God. We always need to keep that in mind. Always need to remember that. So in the New Testament, salvation is spiritual. Primarily. Whereas in the Old Testament, salvation primarily was physical. Spiritual salvation has to do with being forgiven of sins. It has to do with having the spiritual consequences of sin removed from us. What are the spiritual consequences of sin? Well, eternally being separated from God. Facing the wrath and the punishment of God for sin. Spiritual salvation is about the removal of those consequences. So if we understand that, then we say, okay, but how, how does it work? How, how do the pieces fit together? And I'd like for us just to consider a couple passages on this. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, beginning. Paul said, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Hey, wait, that sounds, that sounds, sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like some other passages that we were just talking about. So Paul says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. But how did He do that? Paul says, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So make no mistake about it, as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, Paul talks about how God saved. Salvation was God's work. That it was God's mercy that God poured out. What is mercy? Mercy is when you deserve to be punished for something and yet that punishment is withheld. And so what God has done is God has saved by extending His mercy. 
to sinners, people who deserve to be punished, and yet God says, I will withhold that punishment from you. So again, make no mistake, salvation is the work of God. But how does God do it? Paul says here, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may have a translation that says something different than washing of regeneration. Literally, the words here are the the bath of regeneration or the bath of renewal. I find that to be very interesting. God, through his mercy, Paul said, has saved us through the bath of regeneration. Through the bath of renewal. And so what Paul's affirming is that God regenerates. It's a rebirth process. And we've heard about that, haven't we? Like Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again, the rebirth. Paul here calls it the washing of regeneration. Look at Jesus' words over in Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. I'm not talking about a physical deliverance like in the Old Testament, but the deliverance from sin, being saved from sin. Or how about this passage over in Acts chapter 22? You remember that a man by the name of Saul, we know him better as Paul, the apostle later, but a man by the name of Saul was very much a persecutor of Christians in the first century. And Saul was on his way to Damascus, and he was going to go to intensify the persecution against Christians. And you remember, as Paul was on his journey to Damascus, he came in contact with somebody. Jesus met him on that road. So Saul has a personal experience talking to Jesus. Jesus talking to him. And do you remember what Jesus told Saul? Jesus said, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he did. Saul went into the city of Damascus. And he was there for a couple of days. And there was another man by the name of Ananias. And God called Ananias to go and to talk to Saul. And you remember Ananias was scared at first because he knew the reputation of Saul being a Christian killer. But God said, don't be afraid. I have chosen him. He's a chosen vessel of mine to carry my word even to the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes and talks to this man Saul. And what was it that Ananias told him? Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
Saul was told to be baptized and wash away his sins. That had something to do with salvation, didn't it? Well, consider this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Peter says, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. It's kind of an interesting thing that Peter says there in, in verse 20. Um, talking about the, the days of Noah and how society in Noah's time was just so corrupt, they were so wicked that God decided that he was going to destroy them. He was going to cleanse the earth of those people. And so Noah is told to build the ark. And in the time that Noah was building the ark and, and Noah was, he was a preacher of righteousness, he was, he was, I guess, teaching, proclaiming the righteousness of God during that time period. And while Noah was preparing the ark, while he was building the ark, God was withholding his punishment for a time. But what Peter says here is that in the ark, there were eight people who were saved through water. That's probably not the way that people typically would think of that situation. I think... Listen, they were, they were saved from the water, right? They, they got in the ark and they were saved from the water. But that, that's not the way Peter is using the illustration here. Peter says those eight souls, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives, those eight souls were saved by the water, were saved through the water. You say, wait a minute, I, I thought you said a little while ago, Doug, that God is the one that saves and yes, that's precisely what I said, and, and I believe that's the case. God saved Noah and his family in that physical deliverance sense. God saved Noah and his family from the water. No, Peter says by the water. It was through the use of the water that God saved them. And so Peter goes on. And he says in verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us. What is the antitype? He, he's saying that the saving of Noah and his family was a shadow of something greater, of a, of a greater salvation. And he says there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God saves people through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But how does he do that? What did Peter say? Peter said, baptism saves. He says, in, in a sense, the way that Noah was saved by water, God saved Noah and his family by water. Peter says, God saves people now by water. That is the avenue that God uses to save. 
Listen, there's, there's, a whole lot, there's a whole lot to this. And, and if, if, you, if you will dig into the study of salvation in the Old and New Testament, I promise you, you will be overwhelmed by the amount of information that appears in God's Word. Uh, 501, uh, just those three words, 501 times that, that that is mentioned in the Old and New Testament alike. And because there's so much to this, it, it's, it's really not fair to, to reduce it just to one or two things. But, but here's, here's my whole point for tonight and looking at the subject of salvation. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 20 where we started, Jeremiah was mourning the fact that it was so sad that summer was over and yet he says we're not saved. That was sad. So here we are tonight, and summer is over. And how sad would it be for any of us to not be saved? It would be very sad. It would be very sad for so many reasons. One reason because God has provided absolutely everything that's necessary for us to be saved. Not only has he provided what we need to be saved, but he tells us in his word what we need to be saved. And so it would be terrible, it would be awful for any of us to be in a situation where we are not saved. God has provided access to his salvation for each and every one of us. For us to have our sins forgiven. For us to have the consequences, the eternal consequences of our sins to be removed from us. The psalmist said over in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 16, Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Listen, if you are saved by God, you understand those words. The Lord be magnified because you understand that God is the only one who was able to save you. And we say those words and we sing those words in so many songs. The Lord be magnified. I'm going to invite you tonight, if you are here and you are not saved, Appeal to the words of Ananias to Saul. Acts 22.16 Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. And if you'll do that, if you will submit your will to the will of God, submit your life to God, give Him your heart. Give Him your life. You will see the salvation of the Lord. The more you read, the more you study, the more you meditate in God's Word, the more you will appreciate, the more gratitude you will have for the salvation that only comes from God. Transformation. That's what this is all about, right? I figured tonight we would start with the biggest transformation of all. That's what God wants for you. 
That's what He wants for me. He wants our lives to be completely, completely transformed by His grace and by His mercy. We're going to sing the song that was selected selected a little while ago as a way to encourage your obedience to the Lord tonight. If we can help you as you come to God for His forgiveness, let us know how we can help while we stand and sing.